this evening presents uh, for us a watershed moment. God willing, we're going to finish the seventh chapter of Romans and, if possible, even begin the first portion of chapter 8. We've been camped for many Sunday evenings on chapter 7, and we've gone through the struggle that the apostle testifies to in his spiritual walk, and tonight we're going to get beyond that struggle, I hope, as we look at his conclusions. So I'd ask the congregation, if they would, to stand for the reading of the Word of God. I'll be reading from chapter 7, verse 19, through chapter 8, verse 2. For the good I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh, the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. He who has ears to hear the Word of God, let them hear it. Please be seated. Let us pray. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention once more to this difficult portion of the epistle, we entreat the presence of Thy Holy Spirit, who is indeed the Spirit of truth, who inspired this text in the first place, but we ask now that He would illumine it for our understanding and for our edification, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the past few weeks, we have been looking somewhat closely at this expression by the apostle of his ongoing struggle in his Christian life, in the warfare that he's involved with between the spirit and the flesh, between the desire that he has in general to be obedient to Christ 
And yet how that desire often gives ways, gives way to uh, failure where he continues to struggle with the sinful inclinations of his heart. We've looked at it exegetically, expositionally, and last week we looked at it theologically and philosophically, spending time uh, explaining Jonathan Edwards' uh, treatment of the function of the will in matters such as this. But before we move to chapter 8, there are just a couple of ideas that I would like to deal with briefly in the end of this section. As Paul had said that the things that he wants to do are the things that he don't do, doesn't do, and the things that he doesn't want to do are the very things that he do, does. And there's, uh, there's some very tricky grammatical uh, portions of this text. Getting the agreement here is not so simple. But in any case, we notice in verse 20, he said, Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This may sound at first blush as if the apostle Paul is refusing to acknowledge his culpability in his evil choices. Now, wait a minute. When I do those things that I shouldn't do or that I really don't want to do, yeah, I'm not the one who's doing it. It's like he's trying to absolve himself from responsibility for his sin. But let's not take that as a legitimate option of understanding what he's saying here. What he's saying is that even though I, Paul, am the one who struggles in this manner, doing that which I don't want to do and failing to do what I should be doing and so on, that when I do disobey, when I do fail in the things of God, it's because of the sin that dwells within me. He recognizes where that sin dwells. It dwells in him. And what he's saying is, even though I am still involved in this conflict. When sin wins over the inward man, over the new man, the new man is still the one who identifies my personality. Because what Paul is saying here is that despite the ongoing struggle, despite the failures into sin that mark the Christian life, I still know the apostle is saying here, is that I am a new creature. I am a new creation. And behold, all things have become new. And what God has done with me can be seen, not in this vestigial remnants of my old man, but God can be seen in the triumph that He gives me through His Holy Spirit in the new man. And I'm identifying, as Paul says, with the new man. We've already seen how earlier on he said we're to consider the old man dead. He's been crucified with Christ. So I'm not going to relate to him anymore. The real Paul, the ongoing Paul, the Paul who has been called from sin and who has been redeemed from bondage to that sin is the Paul who is destined for glorification. So I think that's what's in mind of the apostle when he says 
It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Again, what regeneration accomplishes is release and rescue from the total bondage of sin that marks our condition of original sin, our inherent corruption with which we are born and how we walked according to the course of the air and according to the prince of the power of the air and so on. And when we are born of the Spirit, that bondage is broken. We have been set free. We experience the kind of liberty that we have not had since the fall. But even with that regeneration, that rebirth, that renewal of the person by which we are dramatically changed inside, that change does not instantaneously eradicate all of the impulses of sin. As we've seen every week now, that struggle goes on until heaven. And so, Paul says here that there is still sin that dwells in him, but that indwelling sin is not the same captivating power that it was before his conversion. Then he goes on to say this, I find then a law, and he's not talking about the Mosaic law or even the moral law, he's speaking here in terms of a principle, a truism. I've discovered a fundamental truth that describes my current situation when he says, I find then this law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. It's a little awkward, but he says, here's the principle. I find that evil is still present with me, comma, the one who wills to do good. Again, he's identifying himself not with the one who wills to do evil, but with the one who wants to do what is right. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. If there's any question, beloved, about whether Paul here is talking about his pre-conversion state or whether he's describing an ongoing struggle after his regeneration, this one text should put that to rest forever. Because no unregenerate person, no person still in the grip of original sin, delights in the law of God in the inward person. We remember the first psalm in the Old Testament, blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the uh, evil or sits in the seat of the the scornful or walks in the way of sinners, but what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates day and night. And there a sharp distinction is made between the godly man who delights in the law of God, who is like a tree planted by the rivers of water, bringing forth its fruit in its season, and in stark contrast to the ungodly who are weightless, without substance, or like the chaff which the wind drives away. So there, in that portrait of the godly man in Psalm 1, is that his godliness is defined by his delight, 
by the deepest delight of his soul. And the godly man is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates in it day and night. And here Paul is describing his condition. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Now, there's another set of uh, words that jump off the page. Sometimes he talks about the new man, the old man, the inward man, the outer man, the sinful man, the spiritually inclined man, and so on. This is the language that describes the difference between pre-conversion humanity and post-conversion humanity. But what I really want to look at here in these last few verses of chapter 7 is this ongoing war that the apostle describes between the spirit or the mind in this case and the flesh. Let me jump just ahead for just a couple of verses here where he says, I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity the law of sin which is in my, member, in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he concludes chapter 7 with these words, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Do you see that contrast there between the mind and the flesh? Well, in the last verse, he talks about the flesh, and just immediately before that, he said, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so he speaks about body, and then in the next verse, about flesh. Now, if we would look closely at the text, we will see that in the Greek, there are two distinct words that are used there. One is translated by the English word body. The second one by the English word flesh. And the Greek there is the word soma, that is translated by the word body. You've heard it in the English language when we hear about people who have psychosomatic illnesses, that is, they have bodily diseases and bodily aches and pains that are prompted not by some organic infection or disease, but are prompted by mental. Uh, issues, psychosomatic illness. Don't you go to sleep, Nick. Huh? Didn't you get a nap this afternoon? (laughs) All right. I got my eye on you. Keep in mind it. Every time those eyes go to half mass, I notice (laughs) How about it, Ben? You're going to stay awake, aren't you? Promise? Okay, I'm coming right down out of this pulpit if I see you go to sleep. (laughs) Ah, the spirit is willing, (laughs) but the flesh is weak. And anyway, we have this word soma that is translated by the English word body, and then we have the word sarks. In the last verse, that is translated by the English word flesh. If you look at the Latin, you will see the different words are translated in the first, word, first instance by the word corporeal, 
or the Latin word by, from which we get the word corporeal. And then, secondly, flesh then is, is uh, translated in the Latin Bible by the word that derives from the word carnal. So you have corporal, carnal, soma, sarx, body, flesh. Now, just before the service started tonight, I was delighted to meet somebody I haven't seen in so many, many, many years, a man who was present at uh, our wedding almost 46 years ago, uh, one of my professors from college. In fact, I mentioned him in the pulpit a couple, last week, last Sunday night, when I talked about my struggle with smoking and how this Christian professor used a straw and said, let me tell you about my experiences with the Holy Spirit. I just reminded him of that. He walked in the church back there, and he said he remembered that. Well, he told me that my Greek professor is still alive. He's still tutoring people in Greek and Latin. And he's well into his 90s. So, Miller, you make sure that you go back and tell him that I quoted both the Latin and the Greek here in my <laughs> sermon tonight. That poor man, I've been a source of embarrassment ever since I graduated from that institution and from his tutelage, but I mastered his pedagogy, at least his techniques. We'd have to recite from the Greek every day. We had assignments that we had to prepare for, and we'd come to class the next day, and he was ruthless in calling us to recite in front of the rest of the class, but I learned a trick to fool him. He would look around the room and look for people to call upon, and I'd be watching his gaze. And when I wasn't prepared, I would act like Horshack in the old uh, TV series, Welcome Back, Cotter. I would act very enthusiastic, call on me like, ooh, ooh, I'm ready. And he would never, ever call on me when I gave that posture. But when I was well prepared, and he would gaze around the room, I'd just wait till that split second when his eyes met mine, and I would drop my head. <laughs> it worked every time. He'd say, Mr. Sprawl, and I fooled him. I was ready, see. <laughs> oh, the things we do to make it through school. But Miller, please give him my warmest regards, if you will. But this has caused no small amount of confusion, this distinction here that we find in the language between body and flesh. And part of the confusion is linguistic, and the other part of the confusion is philosophical or theological. The term sarx is used again and again in the New Testament, particularly by the Apostle Paul not to refer to our physical nature, but rather to describe our fallen nature, that the sarcical nature is that nature that is controlled by original sin. The sarks describes the old man, the man who has no inclination towards the things of God, the man who is a slave to sin, who is dead in sin and trespasses. That condition of radical corruption is described by Paul with the use of this term sarks. And when he uses the term soma, he's almost always describing the physical aspect of our humanity. 
But here's the problem linguistically. Not every time that the word sarks is used in the New Testament does it refer to our fallen, corrupt nature. Sometimes it does simply refer to our physical, corporeal, earthly existence. For example, when John talks of the incarnation of Jesus in the prologue to his gospel, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so on, and then he goes down to the end of that prologue where he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The word used there by John is the word sarks. And certainly Jesus did not become corrupt. Jesus did not become fallen. He was like us in every point except with respect to this condition of radical corruption. There, John is simply using the term sarks to refer to Jesus' incarnation, His becoming in the flesh, in the physical realm of this world. And yet, just a couple of chapters later, when John is describing the condition of man's fallen humanity to Nicodemus, when he tells Nicodemus that he has to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, he says to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And the flesh cannot get you into the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, he says, that the flesh profits nothing. And in, this, in these discussions, he's using the term sarks. But it's not just John's use of the term. Paul himself uses the term sarks from time to time, not to refer to our fallen condition, but simply to refer to our physical humanity. Remember, he said he didn't know Jesus after the flesh, caught the sarka. What he meant there was, when, I, when Jesus was alive and in His earthly uh, tabernacle during His earthly ministry, I never saw Him. I didn't know Him. I didn't know Him until after the resurrection, until after the ascension. So I never met Him physically in this world. So therein lies the problem linguistically, because you can't just say every time the word sarks appears in the Bible, it refers to fallen sinful corruption, and every time the word soma refers to the physical, because there are times when this is simply not the case. Well, what's the theological problem here? The theological problem is the influence of ancient Hellenistic philosophy as well as Oriental dualism into early Christian thinking. We remember Plato who saw the highest dimension of human experience being found in the mind and that he saw the spirit, excuse me, the flesh, the body as the prison house of the soul. And it is the physical aspect of our humanity that blocks the mind's ability to penetrate ultimate truth, and it is the mind or the soul that is eternal and free and in touch with 
ultimate reality, but the obstruction to that vision of truth is found in the body. The body is something to be redeemed from, which is quite different from the biblical view of the body, where we believe in the salvation of the body. The Greeks believed in salvation from the body. But there grew up in Oriental mysticism this idea that anything that had to do with the physical aspect of our humanity was base, imperfect. Again, Plato said anything physical is at best an imperfect copy of the ultimate idea. And so the physical was seen as inherently imperfect or evil. Now that penetrated heavily the early Christian fathers who began to teach that the way to salvation was denial of the body. Go into the desert, climb up on a flagpole or on a, on a, on a pillar like Simon Stylites, and deny yourself all physical pleasure. You don't eat, you don't drink, there's no sex, none of that thing. Anything that is involved with the body is inherently evil. So the goal or the method of gaining sanctification is by subduing bodily appetites. Now, beloved, we know that physical appetites can be the occasion for human sin, but not because the physical is inherently evil. It was God who made our bodies, and when He made them, He pronounced His benediction upon them and said, that's good. It was God who made marriage and the means of sexual procreation that also received His benediction. But there arose in the early church and has persisted down to the century that the kingdom of God is in eating and drinking. And it has to do with physical appetites. Now, the misuse of physical appetites indeed is an occasion for sin. But we radically oversimplify things when we think that the struggle that Paul is talking about here in Romans 7 is a struggle between the mind and the body. It's not what it's about. It's between the sarks and the pneuma. It's between the old man and the new man. Between a fallen, corrupt nature and the renewed inner person that is created by the supernatural invention, intervention of God, the Holy Spirit. And one key linguistically that helps us over this hurdle is that almost any time that you see the apostle or anybody else in the New Testament contrasting spirit and flesh or mind and flesh, then the term sarks is used not to describe the physical body, but the corrupt nature of the whole person, because the corruption of sarks is not just a sinful 
corruption of physical appetites. Sarx refers to the body, it refers to the soul, it refers to the spirit, it refers to the mind. All of the person who is unregenerate is in a state of flesh. By nature we have a mind of flesh, a soul of flesh, a spirit of flesh. But anytime you see Paul contrasting flesh with spirit or flesh with mind, now he's talking about the distinction between the old man, the flesh, and the new man, the inner man that has been made alive by the Holy Ghost. Well, let me just back up just a little bit. Where? He cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we have in the first place an exclamation that declares a condition of misery where Paul cries out in anguish after just relating to us this ongoing struggle, this death struggle with the weighty burden of sin pressing against the inclinations that he has toward obedience. In the midst of that struggle, he cries out, Oh, wretched man that I am. What's wrong with this picture? Paul is using the very language here in this text that is as politically incorrect as language can be in the contemporary church. In our contemporary church, we have become so narcissistic so preoccupied with self-esteem and self-worth that the last thing we should ever do in preaching is to engender feelings of guilt or worthlessness among our people. We are not to discourage you from experiencing everything that God has made you to be. That's the mentality that we have in the church today. Yet we still like to sing Amazing Grace, don't we? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Who saved such a creature of self-esteem as I am? who saved a wretch like me. The saints of the Old Testament catching one glimpse of the radiant glory of God, of the manifold holiness of God, would cry out in the loathing of themselves, saying, I am a worm and not a man. Woe is me! I am undone. Now there is a sense, ladies and gentlemen, which we can so wallow in our guilt 
and be so preoccupied with our failure that we almost take delight in some form of masochism, self-flagellation. But that's not the problem we face in the church today. The problem we face in the church today is self-denial of the radical character of sin. We don't hate sin the way we should hate it. We don't abhor the disobedience that we manifest in our lives. Paul looked at himself, said, I'm a new man. I delight in the law of God in my inward man. The sin that dwells in me, that's not who I am in the final analysis. But oh, what a wretch I am when I look at my sin. And what he's expressing here is an apostolic state of misery. The Latin shed some light on it, where the text in Latin speaks of being in a state of infelicity, a state without happiness, a state without blessedness. That when I look at my sin, I see my wretchedness, I am threatened and overwhelmed by the power of this misery. I see nothing in which to put my delight. Who will deliver me from that, he asks. But he doesn't leave us hanging, waiting for the answer. He knows in whom he had believed. And he knew who his deliverer was. Oh, wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The answer is, who will deliver me? God. How will He deliver me? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have a Redeemer. We have a deliverer who promises to deliver us fully and finally from this body of death, from this awful burden, this substantive burden that plagues us all our lives. So then, he says, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, with the ongoing power of the sarks, I serve the law of sin. He concludes this section after he's poured his heart out to his readers, saying, if you think you have problems, in walking the Christian life, if you think that there are inconsistencies in your pilgrimage, look at me. I have them too. You don't hear Paul writing to his people and saying, well, from time to time I repent of my sins, comma, if I have any. There's none of that triumphalism found in the pen of the apostle. 
He was keenly in touch with who he was, both who he was in and of himself and his fallen condition, but he was keenly in touch with who he was in Christ Jesus, who had rescued him from that principle that resides in the flesh. Now, I said we'd start chapter 8, and I'll just get a brief little start on it, because this is one more example of the chapter divisions that were put together, I'm sure, by a circuit rider on horseback after the sun had set. Because chapter 8 is linked inseparably to what had just been articulated. Where we read again that magic word that I ask you to notice every time it occurs in the text, the word therefore that signifies a conclusion from what has come beforehand. And here it comes. There is therefore now. There is therefore when, Nick? When? Now, did you or did you not ask me to call up on you tonight? You got to keep asking, quit asking me that unless you're going to be ready when I call. (laughs) You were right, wasn't he, Ben? Yes, okay. (laughs) No coaching from the audience there, Dad. (laughs) There's therefore now no condemnation. Let me just stop there for a second. Therefore, does that mean just in light of the last few verses? I don't think so. I think Paul, when he says the therefore now, is referring to everything that he's laid out before them, to the whole doctrine of the grace of justification that preceded his charge to sanctification and the struggle that he recounts in chapter 7. I think that therefore calls attention to everything that he set forth to the Romans about the redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ, so that the conclusion of the matter of justification is that now there's no condemnation. Let me just stop before, I'm stopping in the middle of a sentence here for just a second. There's no condemnation. It doesn't mean that now God has promised never to judge the world. It doesn't mean that there is no condemnation left in the justice of God for a fallen humanity. No. But there is the end of condemnation specifically and particularly to a designated group. And let's look at that designated group. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have moved already beyond the condemnation of God. Not only have you moved beyond the condemnation 
you deserve from God by the sins that you have stored up against the day of wrath, and that you've escaped that wrath which is surely to come. But there's no condemnation for what you're going to do tomorrow, or the day after tomorrow, or the day after that. This is one of the most beautiful texts in all of Scripture for the assurance of salvation. The threat of condemnation is removed forever from you if it is so that you are in Christ Jesus. Is it thinkable, beloved? After what God did to His Son on the cross where it pleased the Lord to bruise Him, when Christ became a curse for His sheep on the cross receiving the full measure of God's condemnation for the sin of those people. Can you imagine after that, after Christ pays the perfect price of satisfaction for the righteousness and justice of God, that six years later He will visit more wrath upon His Son? Or do you think now, in this day and age, that the Father will say to the Son, go back to Gethsemane, let's do it again? I have another cup for you to drink. No. He drank the cup of the condemnation of the Father for His sheep forever. There is no condemnation left anymore for His Son. And if you are in the Son, you are in the cleft of the rock. You're in the shelter of the rock of ages. You're covered. You're hidden. You're safe. Now and forevermore. Remember the story that John tells of the woman caught in adultery, dragged in her shame by the Pharisees to the feet of Jesus. And in the midst of her public humiliation, The Pharisees begin to test Jesus whether He will fully enforce the law of Moses that required the death penalty. You remember what our Lord did? He knelt down in the sand and began to write. The only record that we ever have of Jesus writing anything. We don't know what He wrote. I can guess. Maybe He wrote in the sand, embezzler and looked at one man who dropped his stone and walked away. Then he wrote, Judy, and looked at another one of them, and he dropped his stone and walked away. One by one, the accusers dropped their stones and walked away, leaving Jesus alone with this woman. You remember what he said to her? He asked her a question. He looks around and he said, <clears throat> Excuse me, where are those who condemn you? Remember? She looks around. All of those who've been part of this kangaroo court had disappeared. And she looks at Jesus, she said, no man, Lord. 
Remember he said, who is without sin cast the first stone? Was there anybody in that group who was without sin? Jesus was without sin. He had every right to pick up the stone and execute her. But he didn't have a stone in his hand. And he looked at her and he gave her the most comforting words that that woman ever had heard in her life and ever would hear thereafter. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How much would it mean to you if you heard Jesus speak those words to you and look at you and say, from this day forward, I will not condemn you. You never have to fear condemnation from me. The world might condemn you. Even the church might condemn you. But if you are in me, you're safe. For now, there is no condemnation for those who are in me. Only Paul can take you from the wretched misery of the ongoing struggle and failure with temptation and sin to the glorious conclusion that despite the struggle, we've passed beyond the threat of death. We've passed beyond the threat of judgment. And there is no condemnation left for us. Because actually, even though we still stumble, our lives are described as those people who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. We are not enslaved by the flesh anymore. Who will rescue us from this body of death? God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we love the gospel, how encouraging it is to us, even and especially in those times of infelicitous behavior. We thank you that there is an answer to our wretchedness, that you have rescued us from the power of sin and of death in Jesus Christ. Amen.